You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health Podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now. Hello, I'm Teresa McKee, your host for A Mindful Moment. Thank you for joining me as we explore ways to increase mindfulness in our day-to-day experiences. Mindfulness is presence, awareness. It's paying attention to what's happening within us and around us. Mindfulness increases our emotional, physical, and mental well-being. It can also enhance our focus and productivity. And there are many health benefits from practicing mindfulness and meditation, from lowering blood pressure to increased longevity. Perhaps most importantly in today's chaotic world, mindfulness strengthens our ability to be more compassionate to ourselves as well as others. Last week, I talked about negative emotions and how if we don't process them, they don't just go away. They get stored in our bodies and can lead to physiological and emotional distress. Mindfulness meditation is one method for helping us to process these emotions and ultimately release them. We associate mindfulness and meditation with the ancient practice of Buddhism because that is the root of today's evidence-based mindfulness practices. By stripping away all of the religious and spiritual components of meditation, mindfulness became palatable to Western civilization and allowed the practice to flourish. But those deeper, more spiritual-based practices incorporate our entire systems, mind, body, and soul, which expands our ability to heal our issues, enhance our physical health, and improve our overall well-being. Regardless of your religious beliefs, you can experience ancient Eastern practices that are powerful in tapping into our individual energies and benefit from the results. Some examples of this are Tai Chi, Qigong, tapping, and yoga. What all of these practices have in common is that they shift our energetic system by altering our meridian channels. We are energetic beings. Like everything in the universe, we're made up of energy. We can't see it with the naked eye, just as we can't see the energy that is emitted from radio waves or microwaves, or the energy being transmitted that allows us to talk on smartphones to anyone across the globe. But it's there, and it runs through our meridians or channels in our bodies. It is the meridians that acupuncture taps into with tiny needles. In traditional Chinese medicine, it is believed that negative emotions that get stored in our bodies create what could be considered a clog in our meridian lines. The energy-based practices clear the lines or release the negative emotions. The Chinese refer to our life energy force as qi. Qi is an active principle forming part of any living thing and is frequently translated as natural energy or energy flow. Qi is the central underlying principle in traditional Chinese medicine and martial arts. Similar concepts can be found in many cultures, such as prana in the Hindu religion, 
Numa in ancient Greece, Chi in Japan, Mana in Hawaii, Lung in Tibetan Buddhism, Rua in Hebrew culture, and subtle energy in Western philosophy. While this is certainly outside of the purview of scientifically based mindfulness practice, all of these energy methods require mindfulness because they involve paying acute attention to the mind-body connection. For those who do not respond well to a sitting meditation focusing on the breath or observing thoughts, this is an alternative route to going within and not only clearing out negative emotions, but enhancing health and well-being. I recently spoke with Nate Rifkin, who has prospered by combining ancient mystical practices with modern strategies for living. As a spiritual explorer, he dedicates himself to the Taoist mystical tradition. His new book, The Standing Meditation, describes his journey from being suicidal to succeeding in life and business. Thank you so much for joining us today, Nate. Well, thank you, Teresa. It's an honor to be here. Thanks. And I enjoyed the book. The book chronicles your journey and how the standing meditation really had a major impact on your life. But it's also full of information about personal energy and mindfulness and meditation. And I thought on the energy side, we might start there because that might be new to some of our listeners. So I was wondering if you could tell me what chi is and how you think modern science is finally catching up to some ancient wisdom. Oh, I'd love to. Um, it, I mean, it, it was certainly new for me when I started on this path. And when, when I first heard of the concept of chi, because I, I think we've all heard of it, you know, it's like this, it's like Star Wars. It's like this energy that permeates, uh, you know, living things in the universe. I was like, well, that, okay, that sounds kind of cool, I guess. I don't know. But what I realized was it wasn't just a quaint concept, and I, I certainly don't think it is anymore. It wasn't just something that ancient civilizations came up with to explain away something that modern science could later correct. It's actually something that meshes with modern science. And I'm not saying the, that the jury's back and we everything's confirmed, but what I started discovering was how in our bodies, the ancient Taoists, which uh, it's a mystical tradition from China, they mapped out meridians in our bodies. And if you've ever gotten an acupuncture treatment, they were working with meridians where they stick the needles in you. Modern science is showing that in our bodies, there are actual channels that match up with where the fascia is. And what I mean by that is in our bodies, we have tissue called fascia that wraps around our organs. Now it matches up with the meridians because this fascia tissue actually has channels going through it. And these channels they run what's called piezoelectric energy through it. So I know I'm throwing a lot at you, but the idea is that we have meridians in our body. Chi flows through these meridians. That's what these ancient civilizations believed. We have tissue in our bodies that runs piezoelectric energy through them, and the lines match up like highways running throughout our body. But what's so great about this piezoelectric energy? Well, there's also evidence showing that it governs the behavior of our stem cells. What do stem cells do? They, they create our bodies in the first place. So I started reading about this. I was like, my goodness, when ancient civilizations were talking about this concept of energy and chi, how it permeates our bodies and how it's so integral to our health, they were talking about this bioelectric energy that we're capable of harnessing and working with. I'm familiar personally because I actually am an EFT practitioner, so tapping, which oh, also cool. uses the meridians but I, I don't know that a lot of our listeners are. So that was a great description. 
what drew you to this? Like, how did you end up studying chi and all of the other things that you write about in the book, leading you to the standing meditation and Taoism? Well, it was the only thing that finally worked for me. I grew up in a very emotional shutdown family, and I was a very depressed, angry uh, kid, teenager, and I was lonely. Prom night in high school, I stayed home and watched TV. And as I got older, I went to college and I started getting really into self-help. So I, I set goals, I did visualization, all that. And I ended up dropping out of college because I was so miserable. And I mean, I don't think anyone noticed I was gone. I never made any friends or anything like that. And as I got older, I really worked hard in my life, but I noticed that I never really was able to achieve the goals I set. What I visualized never really came true. And I started to become more and more depressed. And at my lowest point, I mean, sometimes I'd end up on the floor, like curled in the field position, crying because of those looping, looping, looping thoughts. I just, I just hated myself. And I started to wonder, like, what is going on? Was everything I learned a lie? And also beyond that, my lowest point, I was drinking alcohol every morning. I was drinking vodka and an energy drink just as a coping mechanism to get through the day. It was my way of drowning out those looping thoughts. Fortunately, though, I had a teacher from the business side of things because um, I've been an on, on and off entrepreneur for many, many years. He was into a spiritual tradition called Taoism. So he started teaching meditations from this tradition. Now, I didn't know what it was, but it sounded kind of cool. Like when I first got introduced to the concept, it was kind of interesting to me. I was skeptical, but at the same time, it's like, well, what if we do have the ability to like change our thoughts by changing our energy and working with our bodies and minds in a certain way to really bring about inner peace, to bring about more joy and living a more effective life. And at the same time, we all have like these inner knowings when we kind of resonate with a teaching. So that's what drew me into it. I started practicing meditation daily. What I noticed over time was that I got a buzz from meditating that started getting better and better and better. And I stopped having the urge to drink alcohol in the morning. When that happened, and I remember the day when I felt good enough for meditating where I, where I took a drink of, of alcohol, I actually didn't really feel any better. It was like, I didn't need the crutch anymore. So I, I remember just not touching that bottle of vodka in my freezer ever again until, until I poured it down the drain when I moved out of the condo. But that's when I realized, oh, there's something to this something about this is actually working. It's finally delivering the results that I've, I've just desperately needed my whole life. I think it, it didn't just change my life. This kind of cool stuff saved my life. So that, that's what got me into it. It saved my life. So I, I'm in. I was like, I'm in. Oh, that's great. And it is. It's very fascinating. All of the mind-body connection practices and the spiritual practices fascinate me. And the physiological impact they have is to me still, and I've done it for 20 years, a little bit startling to me, like, oh, that still works. Um, yeah, it's, it's so cool. This stuff is so it cool. is. It's, it's very cool. So I guess, you know, the next question would be how, how would someone tap into that chi or energy through meditation? That's a great question. And the cool part is just by dropping into that meditative state, what goes on is that the chi starts running more smoothly, more efficiently in your body because it's always running anyway. So that I th and I think that's important to know. If you're alive, it's running in your body. So when you slip into a more mindful state, like the, the practices we love, where we sit 
and we observe our breath, we observe our surroundings, we stay in that present moment, and we are able to soothe away normally the chattering mind. What happens is it's like easing your foot off the brake of the energy channels in your body. They're always running anyway, but this is a chance to make them run faster and more powerfully. I like to say it's like your body's a self-cleaning oven. Your energy channels are the mechanism for cleaning up that emotional gunk. So when you slip into that meditative state, and it, there are many on-roads to get there, you know, focusing on the breath, sitting quietly, being out in nature more, being in that more pristine environment, really soaking in the sensations around you. What happens is because your chattering thoughts aren't taking up all that focus and attention energy, your channels start to open up. And then it's just a matter of, can you maintain that? And can you make that a, a daily practice? What would your recommendation be for someone to integrate these practices into their daily lives? Because that's the biggest problem is people hear about it and they think, oh, this is great. And the first thing out of their mouth after that is, but I don't have time. Do you have some suggestions for folks about how they can integrate this into their lives? I do, because I figured out a way to seamlessly integrate uh, a meditation practice in your day in a really almost an accidental way. Because like I was mentioning earlier, I used to drink alcohol every morning. Well, it's a funny thing because when I first decided to start adding meditation to my life, I did two things. Number one, I committed to a daily practice. And number two, I committed to just starting with 60 seconds. And I literally opened up a timer. I think I had it on my laptop and I put in 60 seconds. So what I did is I, I would get up in the morning and I'd shower, brush my teeth, do my thing. I would open up my laptop. I'd hit 60 seconds and I'd meditate. And then the timer would go off. And then guess what? I still went and I drank alcohol because that's just where I was in life. And then every day I added five seconds. So a minute and five seconds, a minute and 10. And then as I got more confident, I added more time because I actually, I remember reading something you wrote and I totally agree. You got to do more than just like a couple of minutes of mindfulness and really for like, you know, uh, two weeks and expect to turn your life around. It's like eating right. It's like exercise, like anything else. You get what you put in. So I kept on adding time. And eventually I got to like five minutes and six minutes. And this is where I start to feel enough of a benefit that I was in a position where I could stop drinking alcohol in the morning. So looking back without even realizing, the reason I tell this weird story is without even realizing it, I'd actually built up a habit. And the way I did it was I picked a specific time slot in my day where I could add in just 60 seconds. And when I say time slot, I don't mean like 8.30 a.m. or something like that. It was in between two habits that were already ingrained. Brushing my teeth was already ingrained. I didn't have to visualize or write a goal to brush my teeth every morning. I just did it. And as unhealthy as it was, drinking alcohol was also a habit. So I actually harnessed the power of those two habits. I added one in between, and I actually used the energy of the negative habit to power the positive one because it was already there. I all I had to do was promise myself, just meditate for a minute then you go drink and add a little bit. So after many days, it was certainly more than several days, but probably not more than two months, the daily habit of meditation became part of my identity. Then I was unstoppable. So my advice would be, everyone has a, a habit that they don't want, but it is definitely ingrained. It could be scrolling on social media. It could be plopping down and watching Netflix. Well, okay, harness the power of that and promise yourself, okay, I'll scroll, 
but I'm going to do 60 seconds of mindfulness first. And then you start adding time. Because once you have that daily habit, it's like building a foundation for a skyscraper. Once you have the daily habit, that's like the foundation. Then you ever seen them build a skyscraper? Once they have the foundation, 10 stories, 20 stories, it just keeps going up. That's what I would suggest. Excellent. Yeah, that's really sound advice for habits because that's the easiest way to maintain them. I love the idea that you also suggest the short time to start because I think it's overwhelming for people if you say, oh, you need to meditate for 20 minutes a day. Well, it'd be lovely to get up to that, right? But if you can start as small as you want, and I agree with you, then if you just do it consistently, pretty soon it's a habit. But in addition to that, I think what happens is because the longer you meditate, the more you feel the difference of what meditation can do. And then pretty soon you want to do it. So you don't even, you know, you don't have to make yourself anymore. So that's great. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I was just thinking that it's, it's like, it's like, okay, I'll do it for five minutes. And you look at the clock and you're feeling wonderful. And it's like 10 minutes went by. That's when the light bulb goes off. Yeah. I used to be, oh, I was terrible with sitting still and you know trying to focus on my breath. And I would think 20 minutes had passed and it was three, but then I crossed that threshold and I would be upset a little bit about having to stop, you know, like oh, I have to go to work now. You know what I mean? I wanted to just keep meditating. So yeah, I totally get that. You talk about the imbalances we create with mindless habits. Can you comment on that a little further? How do we kind of self-sabotage with those mindless habits? The cool thing about mindfulness, one of the cool things, because there's many cool things, is how part of the practice itself increases your perception. Because if you engage in a practice where you quiet your mind, and then you can pick up on the cues in your environment, you're expanding your perceptual awareness that expansion of perceptual awareness is going to start permeating your entire day. You're going to start picking up on things that you ordinarily wouldn't have. I remember like 15 years ago, most of my day was a mindless habit. I mean, the drinking was definitely one of the more like overtly bad habits, but I also watched hours of television per day and I'd slip into that trance where I just watch it. And I remember I used to respond to emails. I, if I got an email that really upset me, I dash off a reply within like a moment and then hit the send button. And then I just go, oh no. Some of these email programs, now they have a button where you can click and say, cancel the send after like five. They invented that because of me. It was a mindless habit. It was as if my perceptual awareness just switched off and I'd blink my eyes and think, what, what on earth was going on? So as good as it is to use one's willpower to like get over bad habits and change yourself, sometimes when it comes to these mindless habits, it's not a matter of willpower versus not because it just seems to happen. This is where that greater perception can come in. Because if you can practice being mindful daily in a routine way, if you can build that habit, what's going to happen is you can start continuing that same awareness even after you quote unquote, like get off the cushion or walk out the door. In fact, that's something my, my teachers advise is once you build that habit, once you walk out that door, you're going to lose that state. It's just going to happen. It might be when you step on some dog poop, who knows what, but you're going to lose that state. But how quickly can you bounce back into it? So when it comes to mindless habits, they're going to happen. The question is, how quickly can you kind of come awake and realize, oh, wow, I'm doing that thing where I just, I just thought I'd glance and check my text messages, but now I'm on social media and I'm reading down this thread. And now I'm just reading this news article that I don't even agree with, but you know, it's showing it to me because I engage with it. And now I'm all you know, angry about it. Once you're able to observe that, that's actually a good thing because, oh, if I can observe it, that's the first step to having power over it. 
So the same way when stuff annoys us while we're trying to meditate, hey, as long as we can observe that separation, realize that we're, we're on our way to being empowered to not let it rattle us. I think that's kind of a rambling answer, but I think, I think that's what I meant. No, not at all. Okay. Yeah. And I agree. I totally agree. You know, I think many of us, including myself at times, we make a decision to make a change, right? But we put our efforts on our external circumstances. So we think if we change what's out there, it's going to make us feel better. And we don't do the inner work first. (laughs) And so I'm wondering if you could describe to me what you think about the inner growth stages and how they translate into changing our outer lives. Oh, yeah. And I, I can relate to that, too. I think I spent my, not my entire 20s, but most of my 20s chasing after future circumstances to try and feel better. <laughs> One of my teachers makes the joke, it's holding your happiness hostage. It's almost like literally holding it hostage. It's like, give me what I want or the happiness is going to get it, you know, and it never works. So what I realized when I was able to f- start feeling better about myself and really, and really stop having those looping self-hating thoughts and I was able to stop drinking alcohol in the morning was that the inner always, always, always comes before the outer change. It always, always does. Now, and that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a linear, like, oh, you change your inner life here. Well, tomorrow at 1230 PM, your outer life is going to change in exactly the specific way you want it. I would have loved that too, but it didn't work for me. So what usually happens is Your outer life is a reflection of some sort of an inner change you need to make within yourself. Let me give a specific example. Let's say you're not satisfied with your friendships because uh, your, your closest friends are not supporting you trying to exercise more and eat better. Well, what's going on is your outer life is trying to nudge you to change something about your inner self esteem and how you feel about yourself so you don't feel drawn to what might be a codependent relationship that's keeping you in your comfort zone. So what's going to happen is life is going to keep hitting you with those friends until you make an inner change, which mindfulness can be a wonderful part of, where you start feeling better about yourself, start developing more self-love, and you realize that you and your connection to the divine can bring all the love you need, and you don't have to cling to a codependent friendship. So what's going to happen after that is if you make that successful change and you start feeling better about yourself is probably your friendships are going to start getting worse and they're going to get more chaotic and life is going to get harder in that respect because you're going to go through a transition period. Now, a lot of people, when this happens, it happened to me, is that they're going to wonder, oh, what am I doing wrong? You're not doing anything wrong. What's going on is that you're evolving. And if you keep going and you keep working on your inner self and your inner self-love and your inner self-esteem and your mindful practice, and generally just cleaning house, you know, mentally and emotionally, the friendships will possibly fall away, probably fall away. Sometimes the friends will actually make a change too, because sometimes you can affect those around you in a really beautiful way, but oftentimes they'll just fall away. And then you might go through a period of solitude and then you start meeting some cool friends when you're able to feel good about that solitude. So the stages that I've experienced that everyone I know who's gone through this process experiences is it's not this linear, oh, you work on your inner life and things are gonna get better. It's more like work on your inner life. You're gonna go through challenges perfectly suited to make sure that inner part of you is really changed. And if you have the faith to maintain that course, then your outer life is gonna shift, usually in a surprising way. 
that is just as good, but you had no idea it's going to happen that way. Like you meet a new friend is like that person wasn't even on my radar, but I'm so glad I went through all that. Yeah, It's always interesting to me in coaching sessions that I have. I mean, it's really common for a lot of clients when something comes up and we start looking at it for them to say, but I already dealt with that. It's already done. I shouldn't have to go back to that. And so I appreciate that you bring up the linear process because it's not, you do take a certain number of steps forward and you may take more steps backward. I mean, that may be what it feels like for a while until you get to a point that you really do have maybe some of the big issues resolved, but it still happens to me. And I've been practicing for a very long time. So I think the combination of that broadened perspective to understand this is just how life works. And then to really understand with our inner workings, things change, we change, you know, there's a lot of variables. So it doesn't lead to a perfect life. You never get to the point that that's it, you're done, right? I mean, that's how I feel about it, but. I completely agree, completely. It's funny in the Taoist studies that I'm going through, our teachers are often say, when you really work on an issue, you really resolve it and dig deep and get over a lot of that. You qualify now for a bigger opponent. <laughs> they could be a little rough like that, but it's, it's not in the bad way where it's like, oh no, then why should I even bother? I think the more accurate, but less funny way to put it is you now qualify to dig in even deeper, to further refine yourself and, and really burn away the deeper levels of dross around you. So the gold can shine through. Now life is totally going to keep getting better and better. But there, yeah, there's all, it's always like coming back, you know, it's like, all right, I have to deal with, with mom again. All right, here we go. I really have to say, you must've been born with a lot of resiliency, but I think what all of these processes do is they continue to build your resiliency. So even if you're hit with bigger challenges, or like you mentioned earlier, the bounce back is quicker because yeah. you have these practices and these techniques in place that continuously reinforce your resiliency and your confidence in the process itself. I have to ask, you know, if you'd like to say anything about the standing meditation itself, since that's the name of the book, do you want to talk about what that is, what that meditation is? Sure. It's from the Taoist tradition. And it's just like the name implies, it's a meditation, but it's actually done in the standing position. The Taoists and a lot of other mystical traditions, I mean, they'll have meditations done lying on the floor, sitting, standing, even walking. Now, when I say standing, though, I don't mean like kind of standing in line, like, you know, the supermarket or something, just chilling out. It's you stand in a specific way where your feet are facing straight forward instead of slightly splayed out. They're wider than the edge of your shoulders. So they're wider than you might be used to standing. You slightly unlock your knees and you tuck your hips almost as if you're sitting on a bar stool. That's like a little bit too high. And it's, it's an invisible bar stool, but it's like, you're trying to kind of put your pelvic bone on it. And then you hold out your arms in front of you like you're hugging a big old tree or, or holding a beach ball. And then you tuck your chin down slightly. What all of those steps do is they allow you to rest in this posture where you open up your meridians. And it's done in such a way where actually you really can rest because even if your knees on, are unlocked, once your tendons adapt and you relax enough, you can actually kind of rest in your bone structure. It's, it's a really interesting sensation. But when you do that, it's like giving, like I mentioned acupuncture earlier, this is like giving yourself an acupuncture treatment. So it's sort of adding another dimension to a, a meditative practice because some people might resonate with a sitting practice and so I resonated more with the standing practice. But what it comes down to is positioning yourself in such a way and using your mind in such a way so you can open up that uh, flow of energy. 
like, that's great. I'm always looking for a variety of ways for people to meditate because not everyone does respond well to a quiet sitting meditation and it's disturbing for some. So I'm always looking for new ones. This is the first time I think we've talked about standing meditation on this show. So I appreciate that information. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners before we close out? Well, first, thank you. um, And I, I hope I helped. And I really meant what I said earlier when I said that the reason I got into this stuff, it it was the only thing that worked for me and it saved my life. So I I just want to say that, you know, wherever, wherever you're at, no matter how frustrated you've been and how many times you've kind of tried and stopped, I've been there too. And you have energy flowing through your body, just like we do. And it's your right to be able to work with that energy to change and transform yourself. And it's a wonderful, wonderful experience when you do. It absolutely is. And I thank you so much for sharing all of this today with us. And I'm sure our listeners will get a lot out of it. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks again to Nate for sharing his journey with us. You can find out more about him at www.naterifkin.com. And you can find a link to his book, The Standing Meditation, on our website. I encourage you to mindfully experiment with various forms of mind-body practices. They can deepen your mindfulness practice and they can also provide an alternative for those who are uncomfortable with traditional sitting meditations. However you choose to build your mindfulness skills, remember that any practice you choose will enhance your well-being as long as you do it consistently. Until next time, we can live better lives and create a better world. All it takes to get started is a mindful moment. Meditation is the most effective technique to strengthen mindfulness. The key to experiencing the full benefits of this practice is to meditate every day, even if you start with just a few minutes and work your way up to 20 to 30 minutes per session over time. Consistency counts, and the benefits are cumulative. So be kind to yourself and meditate daily. Each time your mind wanders away from the breath, Simply return your focus to the breath. It is in this noticing that you're building your mindfulness skills. Your mind may wander a hundred times in just a couple of minutes, and that's normal. Each time you notice, that's mindfulness. Work to Live's Dynamic Coaching Certification Program is a self-paced online course series that strengthens emotional intelligence and mindfulness skills, along with relationship building, communication skills, time management, self-motivation, and more. Visit our website for an informational video on the program. You can also find resources for self and leadership development, as well as the latest books by authors we interview on this show. Go to worktoliveproductions.com slash book club to start shifting your quality of life today. And be sure to visit our YouTube channel at Work to Live, where you'll find videos of our interviews, animated shorts on daily living and working, guided meditations, and more. Please subscribe to A Mindful Moment with Teresa McKee wherever you get your favorite podcasts and rate this podcast so that others can find us. Follow us on social media at Work to Live. A Mindful Moment is written by Teresa McKee. 
The English version is hosted by Teresa McKee, and the Spanish version is translated and hosted by Paola Tile. Intro music, Retreat, by Jason Farnham. Outro music, Morning Stroll, by Josh Kirsch, MediaWrite Productions. Thank you for tuning in. This podcast is produced by Work to Live Productions.